The year is 1950. Joseph McCarthy gives a speech in Wheeling, West Virginia, declaring that communists have infiltrated the U.S. State Department, causing people around the country to debate what it means to be a true American. Meanwhile, the U.S. sends ground forces to Korea, just five years after the end of World War II and less than a year after Harry Truman signed Executive Order 9981, officially integrating the American Armed Forces. And that year, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama went to South Pacific, a musical adaptation of James Michener's short story collection, Tales of the South Pacific, with music by Richard Rogers, lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein, and a book by Hammerstein and Joshua Logan. My name is Jan Simpson. Welcome to All the Drama, a podcast about the plays and musicals that have won American theater's highest accolade, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. There's a lot to say about this show, the second musical ever to win a Pulitzer, so this episode may be a little longer than usual, but I found the show's backstory to be fascinating, and I hope you will too. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what the Pulitzer board saw in a play, but that's not the case with South Pacific. Just two years earlier, the board had awarded James Michener with the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction for his link stories about the relationships between American Seabees stationed on a naval base in the Pacific and the people who lived on nearby islands. South Pacific centered on two of the relationships recounted in Michener's stories. One is between Nellie Forbush, a nurse from Arkansas, and Emile de Beck, an expat French planter who she's alarmed to discover has fathered dark-skinned children with a Polynesian woman. The other romance is between Joe Cable, a Princeton-educated naval officer, and a young Native girl named Liat. The show focused directly on how the Americans and those couples struggled to overcome their prejudices about the idea of love between people of different races and backgrounds. The Pulitzer Board was clearly sending a signal that it was on the side of liberals who championed racial tolerance. Rogers and Hammerstein were longtime advocates of social justice. They were also a well-established team by the time Michener's book came out. Both were native New Yorkers and graduates of Columbia University, and each had enjoyed earlier success in the theater. Hammerstein, who was seven years older, had been born into a theatrical family and helped change the course of the American musical in 1927 when he and Jerome Kern created Showboat, the masterpiece whose songs were integrated into the plots of a serious story about the lives of show people performing in towns along the Mississippi River and testing the region's then rigid rules about the color line. Rogers, the son of a doctor, had scored his success by teaming up with the gifted lyricist Lorenz Hart, with whom he wrote a string of hit shows that included Babes in Arms, The Boys from Syracuse, and Pal Joey. In the process, they created such American songbook standards as My Funny Valentine, This Can't Be Loved, and Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered. 
But by the early 40s, Hammerstein and Kern had parted ways, and Hart's alcoholism and declining health were rupturing the partnership between him and Rogers. So both Hammerstein and Rogers were open to the idea of working together when the Theater Guild proposed turning Green Grow the Lilacs, a play about life in the Oklahoma Territory, right before statehood, into a musical. The resulting show, Oklahoma, became a sensation, running for over 2,000 performances. The next Rogers and Hammerstein collaboration, Carousel, adapted from Ferenc Molnar's play, Lilium, ran for a still impressive 890 performances. But their show after that, a completely original work called Allegro, only lasted for a comparatively disappointing 315 performances, and the duo was eager to create another hit. Enter Tales of the South Pacific. Stories differ on how Rogers and Hammerstein first heard about Michener's book, but everyone agrees that they were first attracted to the story in it called Fodala, a reference to the bargaining banter of the local peddler named Bloody Mary. But the story's plot centered around the ill-fated romance between Mary's daughter, Liat, and the naval officer, Joe Cable. Worried that focusing on that story alone might turn their show into an imitation of Madame Butterfly, Hammerstein read and reread the book, looking for other scenarios. Eventually, he decided to combine that love story with the one about Nellie and Emile that's found in the chapter called Our Heroine. I've now read both stories, and anyone familiar with South Pacific will recognize the storylines. But Hammerstein, a master librettist, added and subtracted and combined bits of other stories in Michener's book to create the show that we all now know. Because he'd never served in the military, Hammerstein sought some script assistance from the successful Broadway director Josh Logan who had put his experiences as an Army intelligence officer to work when he co-wrote and directed the 1948 hit play, Mr. Roberts. Logan moved into Hammerstein's Connecticut home, and the two men spent a couple of weeks working on the script. Meanwhile, Rogers, renowned for his airworm melodies and the quickness with which he set lyrics to music, went to work on the memorable score. The show cost $225,000 to produce, just $2.5 million in today's dollars, and the money was easily raised from 50 investors. Michener was invited to join them, but despite his fiction Pulitzer, he was still working as an editor for an academic publisher and didn't have the money he needed to buy a share. So Rogers and Hammerstein advanced him the money, telling him that they'd take the loan out of his profits at the back end. It turned out to be a great deal for Michener because the considerable profits allowed him to quit his job and write full-time, becoming the author of some 20 novels and a whole bunch of other nonfiction books. South Pacific was an instant hit. Even during its Boston tryout, a critic called it South Terrific, the New York critics swooned too. Soon, scalpers were reportedly charging up to $500 for tickets that sold at the box office for just $6. The show was so popular that there were other reports that fake ticket stubs were being sold so that people who couldn't get an actual ticket could pretend to their friends that they'd seen the show. But just about anyone could buy the cast album. 
and just about everyone did. It shot to number one on the Billboard chart and stayed on the chart for another 400 weeks. Six different versions of the breakout ballad Some Enchanted Evening also hit the charts in 1949, performed by such artists as Perry Como, Bing Crosby, Joe Stafford, and Frank Sinatra. The musical itself won 10 Tonys, including Best Musical, Best Score, and is still the only show to win all four of its acting categories, with Mary Martin winning Best Actress in a Musical for playing Nellie, the opera star Ezio Pinza, Best Actor for playing Emile, Myron McCormick taking the Best Supporting Actor prize for playing the comic CB Luther Billis, and Juanita Hall, the first African-American to win a Tony for Best Supporting Actress for her portrayal of Bloody Mary. And, of course, the show went on to win the Pulitzer. The original Pulitzer citation failed to include Logan. The dean of the Columbia Journalism School, which administers the awards, announced a formal apology the next day, but the slight had already added insult to injury for Logan, who had been forced by his more powerful collaborators to accept smaller billing than theirs and to forgo a share of the author's royalties they got although he did, of course, collect considerable royalties as the show's director. But not everyone loves South Pacific. Some Southerners were vocal about their opposition to the song You've Got to Be Taught, Joe's explanation to Emile about why accepting interracial relationships is so difficult for people like Nellie and himself. Here's Jason Danley, who played Joe in a Carnegie Hall concert production, singing just a bit of it. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be careful. The whole song runs less than two minutes, but it so annoyed two Georgia legislators that they threatened to introduce a bill that would prevent movies, plays, and musicals from having what they called, quote, an underlying philosophy inspired by Moscow, end quote. Even some friends suggested that the song was too much. In his New Yorker review, the critic Wilcott Gibbs wrote that he found the song to be a little embarrassing. But Hammerstein, a lifelong supporter of the NAACP, insisted that the song encapsulated the whole point of the entire musical, and Rogers backed him up. A film version, also directed by Logan, came out in 1958, with Mitzi Gaynor and Rosano Brazzi taking over the Nelly and Emile Rose. That's how I first saw South Pacific. Some people criticized the way color filters were used to highlight the musical sequences, but the movie did well enough at the box office, and you can now rent it on Amazon Prime Video for $3.99. A DVD of a 2001 TV movie version with Glenn Close as Nellie and Harry Connick Jr. as Joe can be bought for around $10. Still, South Pacific tends to be produced less than some of the other R&H shows. Trevor Nunn directed a 2002 revival in London, where the show has always been popular, 
And there was that Carnegie Hall One Night Only concert version in 2005 with a wonderful cast that included Reba McIntyre as Nellie, Brian Stokes Mitchell as Emile, Jason Donnelly as Joe, Lilius White as Bloody Mary, and, amusingly, Alec Baldwin as Luther Billis. I was thrilled to have the chance to be there, but the concert is also now available on DVD. Still, South Pacific didn't return to Broadway until 2008, when Lincoln Center presented a sumptuous revival directed by Bartlett Sher and starring Kelly O'Hara as Nellie, the Brazilian opera star Paulo Zott as Emile, Matthew Morrison as Joe, and Danny Burstein as Billis. It also featured the original orchestrations by Robert Russell Bennett and a 25-piece orchestra to play it. The production won seven Tonys, including Best Revival and Best Actor in a Musical for Zot, although Patti Lapone's Mama Rose edged out O'Hara for the Best Actress Prize that year. As I thought about who might be the best person to talk with me about the show and its legacy, the name at the very top of my list was Ted Chapin, who recently retired after serving for three decades as the head of the Rogers and Hammerstein organization. And he said yes. Hello, Ted. Welcome to Broadway Radio. My honor to be here. <laughs> Do you remember when you first saw South Pacific? Yes. I first saw South Pacific at a production at what was the Music Theater of Lincoln Center, part of the Lincoln Center campus when it first opened, and they realized the two areas of theater that were not covered by institutions in New York at the time were musical theater and straight theater. So they created the Repertory Theater of Lincoln Center, and they created the Music Theater of Lincoln Center. Richard Rogers was in charge of the Music Theater, and they did a really interesting production of South Pacific with Giorgio Tuzzi and Florence Henderson, 1967. And that's the first time I ever saw it. Wow. How many times have you seen it since then? Can you even count? Oh, Lord. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, I, my guess would probably be in the sort of 25 range. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and it ranges from obviously the brilliant production at Lincoln Center Theater to one in uh, in Copenhagen where they switched the order of the act um, without asking. It was all done in Danish, but I certainly knew they were doing something wrong. Um, to let's see, what's the smallest? I've seen it. Has it been subject to the tinying up? Of, I don't know, but um, yeah, no, I've I've seen it a fair amount. Now I've read that um, the 2008 Lincoln Center revival, Bart Scher's uh, directed revival, is uh, one of your favorites, and and I was just wondering. What made that one special for you, if that's so that it's your favorite? That is true, and I would say that, it, that it's my favorite, because it was, in a lot of ways, the sort of dream production of somebody who takes care of shows that are revived, hmm. because the combination of, of Andre Bishop loving the property and therefore feeling that the property as it is was you know, it didn't need to be fixed. And Bartshare, who, for whom this was the second musical he had directed in New York. So he was kind of hungry. And the way he approached it was simply to dive into the text 
and find things that I think people familiar with the show were not aware of it being there. Again, they were always there. Um, and just the whole, you know, the collaborators, the idea of pulling the stage back to reveal mm. an entire orchestra that was playing the original Robert Russell Bennett orchestrations from 1949. Um, I mean, just everything about, and the discovery of Paolo Schott, the further upping in, in our um, world of how good Kelly O'Hara was, is um, just all of these things, all the decisions made in that production were not only the right decisions, but there were no gimmicks. Hmm. I mean, yes, you can say pulling back the stage was a gimmick, but if it's a gimmick, it was a gimmick that was underscoring the power of music in a musical. And more people said that to me afterwards. I mean, the, the audience would cheer every night when that orchestra was revealed. Um, and it was, um, it was very, very powerful. So that's the production that I will I will uh, I will list as my favorite. You said it revealed some things that were always there. Can you give an example? Sure. Obviously, the racism that underlines the story um, has always been assumed to be there. But the couple of changes, by which I mean things that had been in the original text that were changed along the way. Mm -hmm. One of which was putting my girl back home as a moment between Lieutenant Cable and Nellie Forbush, sharing their points of view of where they come from and for Cable to explain how difficult it would be to to go back and to marry Liad and go back to mainline Philadelphia. Again, that was something which may have been too harsh in 1949, but was what was poignant and very powerful, and also adding the, the one line that Nellie Forbush has at the end when she, uh, when she discovers that the mother of Emile's children was of a different race, and she just mutters, colored. It was in the script, it was cut, it was put back in, and I know that Kelly had trouble with it because she felt, she obviously felt the power of it, but also felt the awkwardness of her as an actress having to say the line, mm -hmm. um, but it's powerful. But it was, I mean, if, if the surround, the surrounding story and if the surrounding performances had not been as strong as they were and more was made of this, that would probably have been a mistake, but it was just yet another decision by a smart director to, to honor what Rogers Hammerstein and Josh Logan created um, in the original production. When you look back, what do you think it was about this particular uh, musical that made the Pulitzer Board award the prize to it? Because they had given a citation, as I understand it, to Oklahoma, which correct great American musical set in the American heartland. So what do you think it was about this one that made them go full steam ahead? Well, I think for for several reasons. First of all, it was a contemporary story, a post-World War II. It was post-World War II. And it was, a, you know, a story set in the world of World War II, although not on the front line, about the people who were charged with being part of the military fighting a war overseas. So it, it captured, I think, an emotional sort of post-World War sweep in, in the country. The fact that Rodgers and Hammerstein were coming off of failure, Allegro, they took on 
Josh Logan as a bona fide collaborator. He co-wrote the book with Hammerstein. He directed it well. They they loaded the dice by ca- casting a Broadway star in Mary Martin and a handsome stranger from another field who was uh, taking a little time off the opera world. You know, there were just a lot of decisions that made the entirety of South Pacific be powerful and just sort of hit the cultural world between the eyes. And I think I have a feeling that's why the, it won the, the, the Pulitzer Prize. It's also very good. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> there's that. Um, yeah. How popular is South Pacific compared to the big four? Uh, the big four, I'm thinking Oklahoma, Sound of Music, King and I, South Pacific. How is that what you would consider to be the big four? Well, when I got to Rogers and Hammerstein, the thing that we all said was that they were actually the big five. Huh. Because Carousel, South Pacific. Right, and I've King left out Carousel. Wow. You know, that's okay. You know, but, but so, so you had, and, and I believe still, the most popular title of South Pacific, uh, Sound of Music. And number two is Oklahoma. So the bookends of the Rogers and Hammerstein collaboration are the most popular. And then Carousel, South Pacific, and The King and I were little less popular and done a little less often. But they would, you know, there would be a, a movement to do King and I, then there would be a movement to do South Pacific, then Carousel. So in, they all had their cycles. Mm-hmm. And so they were all done in different ways. And also, if you look at the Broadway outings of those shows, the same thing kind of happened. I mean, South Pacific hadn't actually been done on Broadway since 1949. Um, Carousel, when Lincoln Center did it in, in, in 92, or it was actually it was 94 and Lincoln Center 92 at the National. You know, it hadn't been done in a long time. The King and I, because we had Yul Brynner, was done more often. But um, it, it certainly is one of the of the major RNH shows that gets done all the time. And I mean, I, I, I will say with a, a certain amount of pride that we added Cinderella to that list hmm. because it was being done by schools and by stock companies. Um, but once we figured out how to do a Broadway worthy version of it in 2013, it became a, an increasingly popular show in the in the catalog. Why do you think it took so long for South Pacific to return to Broadway? You know, I don't really know. I mean, it was done. It was done, as I said, at the Music Theater of Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. Lincoln Center. It was done at the City Center light opera season. So it's not as if it was never on Broadway. But also, I think, you know, in a way, if you look at that, the 60s and 70s and into the 80s on Broadway, revivals tended to be star vehicles. And, you know, Mary Martin wasn't going to do a production. Tinza was gone. You know, Yul Brynner redefined The King and I for himself. And, you know, that that made that one a star vehicle. But I think we we had to wait until there was a reappreciation of the Rodgers and Hammerstein canon for for theaters, producing theaters and audiences to be willing to take on these shows and to realize just how good they were. They are. Mm-hmm. This play, I, well, I guess all of their plays in one way or another deal with outsiders. But this mm-hmm. play really takes on the issue of race. And I, I was wondering, why do, 
you think, particularly in 1949, this is pre-civil rights movement, were Rogers and Hammerstein so intent on taking on this story and sticking to it, even when they got some criticism for the song, You've Got to Be Taught? I think that Rogers and Hammerstein were primarily attracted to stories that included characters with rich emotional lives, problems to be solved, solutions to be found. I think in what Michener was describing in the stories that make up the tales of the South Pacific, you know, they found the way the American GIs dealt with the natives of that part of the world, they found it fascinating. So I think I think part of it has to do with really good theater craftsmen taking a bunch of stories and figuring out which were the ones that would have theatrical resonance, but also would explain to the audience what going through World War II was all about. If they, if they were visionaries, I think what they did, and I don't know if they were, I don't know how much of this was actually pre-thought or just happened, in a way, what's South Pacific being in 1949, just before 1950, I think part of them is saying to the audience, okay, that's the, world, the war that we've just come out of. But folks, welcome to the next decade. You've got to be carefully taught that's what's going to happen in the next decade. Because, of course, that is what happened. The civil rights world started to, you know, to take on a very different resonance. So in a way, you know, if they did, if they were visionaries, you know, it was it was that way. And also, I think them defending the song Carefully Taught, which I always like to point out is about a minute and 15 seconds long. I know it does not. It does not overstay its welcome. But again, really good theater craftsmen that they were. They knew how to write up to that song, deliver the song and then go away from it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it you know, and whether people felt it was preachy it was what that character felt at that point. And, you know, he's talking to Emile Debeck. They're, they're deciding whether, you know, whether they're going to go off to the, on the mission together. And they're, they're talking about the troubles they're having with their girls. So it's really, it, it is really fascinating, but it was clearly powerful, powerful enough for the, I think it's the, the, the Georgia State Assembly to, to outlaw the show and because you know, they felt that it had a sentiment that, that was, uh, you know, any interracial stories were influenced by Moscow, I believe they said. The conversation about race, and particularly in this past year, has changed so much that is it difficult to do some of the R&H shows now? Because although they might have been progressive in their time, they might not seem so in ours. I think that is a very good and very difficult question, because I know that there are, I mean, there's a, a, a theater that I'm on the board of that was going to do South Pacific and they've canceled the production because, uh, because there, there's a feeling that, that they are, they're racist. It is racist, South Pacific is, and also The King and I. What is unfortunate, and I hope we will get through this period, is, first of all, I don't believe either Richard Rogers or Oscar Hammerstein II had a racist bone in their body. But the way they wrote characters um, were very specific. Remember that that was an era, you know, at the sort of pre-microphone era 
when uh, actors tended to enunciate from stage. And Oscar Hammerstein didn't want the folks in Oklahoma and didn't want natives from the South Pacific to talk like they were going to be in My Fair Lady. Um, that was a different, a different world. So that he wrote a lot of these shows in the dialect so that he would make that certain that the actors would understand that they should speak the way people in that, in that place and time spoke. So when, when you look today and you see the King of Siam saying is a puzzlement, people think, wait a minute, that's insulting, you know, or Bloody Mary saying, you know, made out of head, you know, Bloody Mary learned English from the GIs, you know? So I, that's why I think, I think it's, it, it's, a, it's tricky. It, we're in a very sensitive period. My hope is that, that we will get through it. I know there's a production in South Pacific that's happening in the UK this summer where they are um, sort of grabbing the dialogue themselves and doing audience meetings and education and they're, they're going right into it, you know, and I hope it'll work for them. I really do, because I think that's that's the bold thing thing to do. Um, but, you know, we live in skittish, a skittish world, as you know. But I think even if full productions are not done, those scores are going to live on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're too good. And I think, I mean, there may be some changes. I mean, in my, in my era at Rogers and Hammerstein, we made some subtle cuts and some not so subtle cuts. I mean, in Cinderella, there's a, she has a, a you know, a line in my own little corner where she, she says, I'm a slave in Calcutta. And, um, you know, very early on in my time there, we changed that to thief. Because, you know, to say, to have, you know, in 1957, Julie Andrews think, saying I'm a slave in Calcutta didn't m mean the same thing as, you know, Laura Osnes singing it on the stage of the Broadway theater in 2013. Um, and I, I, you know, I mean, people have, have asked me, um, you know, what would Rogers and Hammerstein have thought of various productions? You know, and and my answer is always, well, if they were if they were plopped into t onto today without having any of the interim years of culture changes and world changes, they might have problems. But if they'd been around and been through all the cultural changes, they probably would have had more notes than any of us had. But they did like their their shows to be out there and um, were very supportive of them being produced. And in this case. Whatever happens, this one is always going to be remembered uh, as a winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thanks for, for taking the time to, to, to talk to us about this one of the big five. <laughs> well, <laughs> Jan, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and it's always a pleasure to talk about things Rogers and Hammerson. I spent enough of my life there that... I sort of have it in my bones now. After Ted and I talked, I learned that the Chichester Festival in England was doing a production with Gina Beck as Nellie and Julian Ovenden as Emile. It opened last week, a few days after England had gone through a racial reckoning of its own, when some racist soccer fans began to harass three black players on the national team who missed penalty kicks in the big Euro 2020 final against Italy. 
But director Daniel Evans was aware of South Pacific's racial fault lines long before that, and has attempted, without altering the script, to amp up the presence of the show's Asian characters and to turn down the stereotypical elements in Bloody Mary's performance. The production has drawn rays from most critics, and Chichester will stream the show in August. You can check the show notes for more information on how you can see it. In the meantime, thanks for listening. I hope you'll come back next time and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway radio podcasts. And if you aren't already doing so, that you'll consider making a contribution to support our work, which you can do at patreon.com slash broadwayradio.